Well, if you brought your Bibles, if you would go to the book of Micah, we'll be in Micah 1. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 7 this morning. Micah 1, 2 through 7, and we'll read it as we go through it. In 1994, some of you will remember this, there was a really famous trial. Anybody remember what trial that was? O.J. It was a murder trial that captivated the nation. Uh, The pursuit that was on television attracted something like 95 million viewers. The trial itself got more than 150 million people watching it. People stayed home from work just so they could watch the trial. Everyone is either watching it, following the updates, or at least speculating on who was guilty and who was innocent. And I think this kind of goes to the whole idea that we just love courtroom dramas. There's something about courtroom dramas that fascinates us. We enjoy it. I think what we love the most about it is we get to play the part of the jury while sitting at home. Hearing the evidence, listening to the witness testimonies, weighing the credibility of each witness, talking about how much we like or don't like the prosecutor or the defense attorney, weighing the credibility of the witnesses, connecting the dots, trying to determine the facts of the case. You get to play detective. Courtroom dramas satisfy our desire for justice. We innately sense that criminals should be punished and that innocent people should go free. Lawbreakers should get what they deserve. That's justice. Justice is giving to a person what they deserve. And any court that fails to provide justice, that allows criminals to go free or punishes the innocent, is not a just court. It's a kangaroo court. A kangaroo court. The idea comes from the idea that kangaroos jump and leap. A kangaroo court leaps over evidence. It leaps over facts. And it jumps straight to a preconceived verdict that only benefits a select few. The kangaroo court perverts justice by the use of false witnesses. Think of the trial of Jesus, one false witness after another. They pervert justice by withholding or hiding evidence, exaggerating other evidence, or in some cases they just make up evidence so they can get the verdict that they want. These are all realities in a court that's run and managed by sinners. But there is a courtroom where this does not happen. There is a court that this kind of sinful injustice never occurs. It's in Yahweh's court. It's in God's court. His court is a court of perfect justice, where justice is always satisfied. And our passage this morning takes us into that courtroom. You don't have to turn on the news. You don't have to turn on the television. You get a front row seat into Yahweh's courtroom. It's a criminal court where criminals are tried and convicted. In Micah 1, 2 through 7, you're going to see five elements of Yahweh's criminal court. Let's begin with the first element. The first element is the witness. Every trial needs a witness or two. And this court has a witness. Look at verse 2, Micah 1, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God, let Yahweh be a witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. 
A witness is someone who has first-hand information. They have first-hand knowledge. They saw the events occur. In Yahweh's court, there is one witness. And this witness is always reliable because he sees everything. He saw every aspect of the crime. Nothing was hidden from his eyes. He doesn't need to go back and see if there's camera video footage of the event. He saw it himself. He also will never get on the stand and say, well, I don't remember what happened. That memory is a little fuzzy to me. His memory is perfect. It is faultless. He saw everything. He remembers everything. His memory does not diminish with time. It doesn't fade over the years. There's no fuzzy facts or vague details that he cannot accurately remember and recall. And this witness is always honest. He always tells the truth. He tells it just the way it happened. He can't be bribed. You're not going to be able to pressure him into changing. Even if you try to make some threats, it's not going to work. His testimony is going to be accurate. It's going to be true. You don't even have to swear him in. Other witnesses, you have to get them to put their hand on the Bible and promise to tell the truth. This witness, his own nature, promises he will be truthful. The witness is none other than Yahweh himself. The testimony you're about to hear in this passage is the testimony of the most honest, reliable, and the only omniscient, omnipresent witness in the universe. By the way, this isn't a closed courtroom. All are invited. Everyone may attend the trial. You may sit in the gallery. In fact, he doesn't just invite you. He actually gives a command. And tells you, I want you to come to this trial, and I want you to watch, and I want you to listen. He actually says, hear. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. The word he uses here, hear, doesn't refer to just allowing the sound to run into one ear, wash over your brain, and slip out the other side. It's not a passive listening that he wants. The term refers to paying careful attention. Listen carefully. Don't just be hearers of the testimony, but act on what you hear. Because the testimony is not given to convince the jury. The reason he's giving this testimony is not because there's a jury, a panel of people sitting there to determine guilt or innocence. He's not giving the testimony because the judge needs to hear the evidence. The testimony of the witness. The testimony of Yahweh is intended to get the attention of the peoples. That would be all of us the rest of the world. Micah's book was written to the nation of Israel. But Yahweh's testimony, his witness, is for everyone. It is for the entire world to hear. Because in his witness, he has an accusation to make. He's going to bring charges against a very specific defendant. 
But when he brings those charges, those charges will also apply to everybody else in the world. Notice he says, Come and listen, and let Yahweh be a witness against you. The antecedent of you, you points back to all peoples. It points back to everyone. You're invited into this courtroom to hear the testimony of Yahweh, but you're invited there not just to be a spectator. Because as he charges the defendant in the case, he will also be charging you in the case. Bruce Walkey. All nations are summoned for judgment against the chosen nations. Excuse me. All nations are summoned for judgment against the chosen nations entails there, that would be the the nations, judgment as well. When he charges the defendant, he's charging everyone else. He's charging the entire world. Yahweh brings an indictment against every person alive. This makes Yahweh unique. One of many things that makes him unique. He's not like the other gods of the world. Gods of wood and stone who are kind of isolated to geographic regions. Those gods, their knowledge only goes so far as the geography around them or the guy who created them. If the guy who created the God doesn't know what happened, the God doesn't know what happened either. Yahweh's not isolated to an earthly tabernacle. Notice at the end of verse 2, the Lord from his holy temple. Some have suggested that holy temple here is a reference to the holy temple in Jerusalem. That Yahweh's in Jerusalem, in the temple, and he's making this decree from Jerusalem. That doesn't work. First of all, the term here for temple doesn't refer primarily to a temple. It refers to a palace, a dwelling place. This is his abode, his home. Second, in verse 3, Micah writes that the Lord is coming forth from his place and coming down to the earth. So if he's leaving his place and coming down to the earth, then he's not on the earth when he gives this witness. So this temple, this holy temple, can't be the one in Jerusalem. And third, the rest of the scriptures are clear that the abode, the dwelling place of God, is not on earth, it's in heaven. Psalm 11, verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. From heaven he has a perfect view of everything that occurs on earth. And he sees every action, he sees every event. Every offense against his holy law ever committed, he sees and he remembers it perfectly. Here's a comforting thought. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin that you will ever commit, you commit before the eyes of God. As though he was standing right there. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. 
He sees it all. He remembers it all. His accounting of your deeds is perfect. And when you stand before him in judgment, there's not going to be any defense that you can make. You won't be able to offer some feeble excuse as to why you did what you did or say that it didn't happen that way. You won't be able to bribe the witness. You won't be able to refute his assertions. No one will be able to counter his testimony. Because his testimony is perfect, it's true. In Micah 1, Yahweh is the star witness, and he is the only witness. And he invites you to come to hear, to listen, and to learn, so that you won't make the same mistake that the defendant in this case has made. So you won't follow in their path. Let's look at the next element of Yahweh's criminal court. The next element is the judge. Standing before a human judge, I've never done it before, but I would imagine it could be scary. And in fact, if you watch some of the courtroom drama, you find hardened criminals begin to cry when they stand before the judge. A lot of questions have to go through their mind. What's the judge going to do? What does he have the power to do? And that expectation of punishment, the knowledge of the judge's authority, the, the knowledge that the judge has the ability to carry out a punishment can be terrifying. It can be scary. Even the toughest criminals are sometimes softened and humbled standing before a judge. But as fearful and as scary as it might be to stand before a human judge, none of them come close to the one that presides in Yahweh's court. This judge isn't scary. He's terrifying. His authority and his power far exceed every other judge. And when people enter the courtroom, you won't hear the bailiff say, please rise. Because when he enters the courtroom, everybody just falls down. Look at verse 3. Michael 1, verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Notice verse 3 begins with a preposition. For. It's an explanation. He's giving you the reason why you should listen attentively. Why you should pay attention. Why should you show up in the courtroom and hear what is being said, what is being done? This is why you should act on what you learn. Why? Because Yahweh is coming. He is coming in judgment. He's coming to be your judge. And he's pictured as leaving his heavenly throne and coming to earth in judgment. He leaves heaven in a human way, and he comes to earth. There's some who might rationalize and say, well, God's in heaven. He's far away. Therefore, I'm safe. I don't have to worry about it. And Micah says, no, 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 you don't understand. He's coming. And he's not going to be far away. And when he gets here, he certainly won't be safe to those he is judging. When he arrives, he's going to tread on the high places of the earth. The term here he uses for tread 
is used figuratively. It describes a conquest. It's used in some places to refer to the treading of grapes, smashing grapes with your feet to produce wine. Isaiah uses the same image to describe God's wrath. Isaiah 53, verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. That same word here for tread is used referred to bending a bow in combat. You bend the bow, you win the battle. It's the idea. You notice none of these paint a very comforting, pleasant image of Yahweh. They all have a sense of violence about them. Yahweh's presented as arriving as a conqueror who comes and he conquers and he judges. And he will tread upon, he will defeat every high place. High places refer to hills or mountaintops. If you wanted to build a fortress, where would you build it? In the valley or on the mountain? Build it on the mountain. The hardest fortresses were always at the top of a mountain. Temples to false gods were also built on the tops of mountains. They actually believed that the gods lived on the heights. They lived on tops of hills and mountains. And if you could conquer the hill or the mountain upon which that temple was built, you conquer the god. And Yahweh is going to come and he's going to tread on all the high places of the earth. There's no military that can stop him. There's no god of this world that's going to stand up to this judge and Micah is going to illustrate that in a very graphic way. Look at verse 4. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will, uh, will split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. Now, some people have said, well, that's all symbolic. That's all metaphor. doesn't really have any meaning. And if you read the commentaries, they'll tell you, well, this is so out of place. This doesn't belong here. Why is this here? Well, if it's a symbol, it means something. Symbols point to something. Calling something a symbol doesn't mean you can dismiss it. Dale Ralph Davis says, if it's symbols, symbolic of what? Symbols point to realities. A biblical writer often uses symbolic or hyperbolic language because normal description is utterly inadequate for impressing the truth upon his readers. Micah has a truth that is really hard for us to understand, so he's going to present it in hyperbolic, figurative language. And he describes the mountains. I looked up this word for mountains. Do you know what it means? Mountains. Yeah, that's what it means. I looked at the word for melt. It, same thing. It means to melt. When Yahweh comes, the mountains will melt. From a human perspective, mountains are immovable. When we talk about a really great task, we say it's like moving mountains. They withstand the storms of time. They withstand earthquakes, wind, water. You can throw anything at a mountain. It'll just sit there. 
and changes very little over time. Yet, when this judge shows up, the mountains literally just melt. And he describes that in a different way. He describes it as wax before a fire. Take a piece of wax and put it over a bonfire, and it won't last long. The mountains are pictured as melting into liquid. They will become like water poured down a steep place. That's what he says at the end of the verse. Yahweh here is infinitely more powerful than anything in the universe. His power is so great that mountains liquefy in his presence. The mountains can't stand in his presence, and neither can the valleys. Notice that in verse 4, he says the valleys will be split. The word here for split is also used to refer to a wineskin bursting, breaking. The mountains melt and the valleys split open like wineskins. Walter Kaiser says, so awesome is his presence that even nature itself threatens to come apart as it responds to him. The valleys were the place where events of human life took place. This was their view of valleys. Battles were fought and won in the valley. Crops were grown there. Shepherds and herdsmen took care of their flocks there. This wasn't the abode of the gods. This was the abode of people. And yet when Yahweh comes in judgment, even the valleys can't hold together. They, they rip open. His power is so great that there is nothing that can stand up against him. Jack Riggs, he says, If the most permanent topography of the world cannot maintain itself when he appears, how much less men who oppose him? If the mountains melt in his presence, what are you and I going to do? Micah brilliantly and graphically portrays the power of Yahweh. The courtroom Micah is depicting is, anything, is unlike anything you've ever seen. Yahweh is the only witness and not only is he the witness, but he is the judge. He is the judge. He is the executioner. He will pronounce the sentence, and he will bring about the sentence. And it's at this point, the people in the nation of Israel are clapping. Saying, yes, Micah, we agree. Yes, God is going to come and judge those evil Gentiles. We don't have to worry about it. The Jews would have affirmed everything Micah had said so far. God is coming to judge the world. God will bring justice. And his presence is terrifying. They all said amen. But Micah has a message for them. Why is Yahweh coming in judgment? Who's he coming to judge? This brings us to the third element of Yahweh's criminal court. The accused. Who's he here to accuse? Verse 5. All of this for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? The people that Yahweh is here to condemn, to indict, is not the Gentiles. It's not the pagans. It's not even Israel's enemies. It's his own people. It's the nation of Israel. 
And not just the northern kingdom or just the southern kingdom. He lumps them both together. Notice the NASB begins the verse, All this for the rebellion of Jacob. All of this explains the cause of Yahweh's judgment. He's coming in judgment because of the rebellion of Jacob. Jacob here is a reference to the northern kingdom. How do you know that? Because of this next line. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And I want you to notice, all of this for the rebellion of Jacob. What is the rebellion of Jacob? That term rebellion is not the normal term for sin. There's a Hebrew word for sin. It just means to miss the mark, to fail to live up to the standard. This is not an accidental sin. This is a sin of intention. This is a sin of desire. This is a sin somebody wanted to commit. It was willful. It was done with full knowledge. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew what they were doing. God hated it. And more than that, it's a term used to describe someone violating an alliance. And they violate and break the alliance by violating a covenant. He's accusing them of being covenant breakers. You've broken my covenant. One lexicon said it is a fun, in a fundamental sense, it refers to covenant treachery. Both kingdoms, north and south, are guilty of trying to break free of their covenant obligations to God in the Mosaic Covenant. By the way, they had all agreed that they were going to follow the covenant multiple times. Bruce Walke said his relationship to Israel was not one by contract, but in covenant, a matter of the heart. In contrast to contracts, which are essentially based on distrust, a covenant is based on an I-U commitment to one another, which is conceived and loved and brought forth through faith. They were supposed to be faithful to the covenant that Yahweh made with them. And instead, they were trying to find every way they could avoid the covenant. They could avoid their obligations. And they broke that trust between Yahweh and Israel. And Micah, though, is not focusing on the population. He's not focusing here on the people of Israel, even though they're guilty. His focus is on the leadership of the nation. Notice, he says, what is the rebellion of Jacob? What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria is the capital. It's the capital of the northern kingdom. And the same is true in the south. In the south, the capital was Jerusalem. And he says, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? The capital cities were the center of the, of the sin. They were the ones leading, teaching, and pushing the corruption. Micah here actually personifies the capital cities. He turns them into people, in a sense. The phrase, what is the high place of Judah? If you wanted to translate that very woodenly, you would say, who is the high place of Judah? He personifies the two capital cities as guilty criminals. Who is the rebellion of Jacob? 
the leaders, the rulers, the priests, those who should have been leading the people to follow Yahweh, those who should have been enforcing the divine commands, they were leading their people into more and more and more sin. They were the ones leading the rebellion against Yahweh. The capital cities were the center and the source of the corruption. Even Jerusalem, you know, the city that was supposed to be the center of Yahweh worship, even Jerusalem is put on par with Samaria. They're just as wicked, just as corrupt. And both of them are accused of being in rebellion. And they're accused by a witness who sees everything, who remembers everything, who knows everything. And now the judge is going to render to them perfect judgment, perfect justice. Yahweh's not coming in fury and in wrath because the Gentiles messed up. He's not coming to wipe out a pagan nation. All of this, the mountain melting, mountain melting judgment is coming upon God's own people. The people he chose for himself. Don't ever get to a point where you think your religion, your position in the church, or even your status as a believer entitles you to live a sinful lifestyle. That you can just excuse sin because, well, hey, I'm one of God's people. I'm one of his chosen. I don't have to worry about it. Don't think that you can continue on in your sin and God's going to say, okay, no big deal. That's the point he wants you to understand here. If God would judge and destroy the nation that he called the apple of his eye, if you go into the New Testament, if he would punish his own son for sin, what makes us think we can be the exception? That he won't judge us. God called all the nations, all the peoples to this trial to learn this lesson. If God's willing to destroy Israel, he's willing to destroy you too. And in bringing judgment on Israel, God wants you to fear him. And that fear should lead you to live a holy life. We have something similar to this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 5, this regarding elders who refuse to repent of sin. He says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Rebuke, expose their wrongdoing, strongly admonish them before the entire church. Stand up and tell the entire church, this guy's in sin and he refuses to repent. And rebuke him. Why? Isn't that kind of embarrassing? Isn't that kind of mean? Why would God want the church to do that? Into the verse. So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. If you're willing to do this to an elder... You'd be willing to do it to me. When you read about the judgment on Israel, learn the lesson. God's serious about holiness. He hates 
all sin, and especially those of his own people. Peter said, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Like the leaders of Israel, your knowledge, your relationship to God makes you more culpable for sin, not less. Think of what James said in James 3. Let not many of you be te- become teachers, for they will incur stricter judgment. The more knowledge you have, the more accountable you are. You'll have no excuse on judgment day. You won't be able to turn back to God and say, well, I didn't know. Because he's given you his spirit, he's given you the word of God, you have the local body of Christ, you have everything that you need to live a holy life, and you are without excuse if you don't. What's the fourth element of Yahweh's criminal court? Fourth element, the penalty. This is in Micah 1 verse 6. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. Verse 5, Micah kind of casts a very broad net and he catches both the northern and the southern kingdom into one and he indicts both of them and says, both of you are guilty. In verse 6, notice the pronouns change. For I will... It's now Yahweh speaking. And he narrows his focus directly on Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria's sin, Samaria's violation of God's law was so grievous, so wretched, so terrible, that there was nothing less than a complete destruction that would satisfy God's justice. Only a complete destruction would do the job. You might say in modern terms, it was the mandatory minimum. Nothing less would suffice. And Samaria was a pretty amazing city. I'm sorry this picture isn't all that great. It sat on the top of a mountain. It was elevated some three to 400 feet above the plains around it. And it was only accessible from one side. If you look at that picture, you notice on the right, there's that ridge that leads up to it. It's the only way you can get to it. And its position made it to where if you had catapults below it or on the hills around it, you could not reach the city with your catapults. So it made a great place for a fortress. The surrounding terrain, by the way, I know this picture doesn't show it very well, was surrounded by olive trees and vines. They had a whole bunch of wealth. This is a beautiful place to live. C.W. Wilson. On three sides it is surrounded and overlooked by hills clothed with olive and vine. On the fourth side of the hills are low, and the view over them to the west, with the blue waters of the Mediterranean in the distance, is one of exceptional beauty. This was prime real estate. The city actually had an ivory palace. It was built by King Ahab. And that palace was at least two stories tall. We know that because King Ahaziah fell through the lattice in 2 Kings 1. Yet the rebellion of Samaria was so great that God said, I'm just going to wipe it out. He said, I'm going to make 
Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. I'm going to turn it into a planting place for vineyards. God's going to return the land back to its original purpose. He's going to turn it back into a garden for growing plants. Complete and utter destruction. The palace, the fortress walls, all of it is going to go crashing down the side of the mountain. And once again, Micah uses some very vivid language. He says, I will pour her stones down the valley. Pour gives the idea of liquid. Like water rushing down the side of the hill. Her wealth, the ivory palace, the thick walls, all of it is going to go tumbling down the side of the mountain. Have you ever had a little water on the table? And you didn't have a cloth to wipe it up, so you took your hand and went like this? Have you ever done that? That's the idea here. God's going to take his hand and do this. And remove it. He ends the verse by saying, and I will lay bare her foundations. Have you ever seen those pictures like an F5 tornado goes through a, a, a town and you see those heartbreaking pictures where you see a whole bunch of green land with some scattered debris and then you see just foundations of where houses and buildings used to be? That's the picture. That is what God is promising to do to Samaria. And just like a piece of wax, it has no chance against the blazing heat of God's wrath. There's nothing that's going to stop God from doing this. The day of judgment is not the time to figure out you need to repent. Because once the day comes, it's over. God gave Samaria ample warnings. He actually gave them warnings from multiple prophets. And when judgment came, there was nothing they could do about it. God called them numerous times with offerings of peace and pardon. Like this one in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Over and over and over again, God promises pardon and forgiveness if they would just repent. And they refused. They didn't listen. And eventually that judgment came. The question we ask today is, will we listen? Will we hold on to our sin and just say, well, it doesn't really matter. I can just keep going the way I am. God will be long-suffering. He'll wait for me. You keep doing that, and you will be swept away. Judgment will come. God's penalty for sin is just. It's right. And it's sure. Either you will pay it, Or as a believer, you will turn to Christ and he will pay it for you. But one way or the other, God's justice is going to be satisfied. Someone is going to pay this penalty. And Samaria's penalty for crimes is complete destruction. 
But that brings us to another question. What in the world did Samaria do to justify such a horrible judgment? What crime could they have committed that would call for such a penalty? This brings us to our last element of the criminal court. The crime. Look at verse 7. All of our idols will be smashed. All of our earnings will be burned with fire. And all of our images I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings. And to the earnings of a harlot they will return. There is some overlap here with the previous verse, because as you can see, he's talking about some of the penalty. But the focus here is on the crime. And the crime here is idolatry. Notice in the verse, he says, All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. All of her images I will make desolate. Each of these is directly connected to the sin of idolatry. And Yahweh uses the repetition, all of her, to really emphasize the point. I'm going to get rid of every shred of this sin. Just as I wiped out the entire city, every piece of evidence or everything related to the sin is going to be removed. And the idolatry of Samaria wasn't a short-term event. It started almost immediately after the division of the nation of Israel. This had been going on for a long time. You remember back in 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam had just become king. Rehoboam was the son of, anybody know? Someone said it, Solomon. And the people went to Rehoboam and said, hey, Rehoboam, um, your father was kind of harsh on us, the ten tribes of the north. Your father was kind of harsh on us. He made us work really hard. Would you ease our burden a little bit and we'll serve you? And Rehoboam goes to his father's counselors and his father's counselors said it would be a good idea for you to listen to them and ease their burden. And Rehoboam leaves his father's counselors, goes to his buddies, and his buddies said, no, 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 you're king now. Be harsh. Increase their burden. And Rehoboam says, I like what my buddy said. And he increases their burden. And in 1 Kings 12, you can actually learn that the leader of that, those ten tribes was a guy named Jeroboam. And when Rehoboam gave him the answer, he, he and the ten tribes said, we have nothing else to do with the line of David. Back to your tents. Go home. We're done with the line of David. So they broke away and they formed a new kingdom. And they appointed for themselves a new king, Jeroboam. He wasn't in the line of David. And scriptures say he was a wicked king. And in fact, if you go through the book of Kings, other kings are compared to him as the standard of what it means to be wicked. If God wants to explain how wicked you are, he compares you to Jeroboam. And he began the idolatry of the northern kingdom. He instituted it as a matter of, of law. You see, he wanted to hold on to his power, 
And he realized, look, if I have a whole bunch of Jews here and they all leave every year and they go down to Jerusalem and they go to the temple to worship, well, they just might be getting those fond feelings and memories and nostalgia of the good old days when we had a united kingdom and they might get this crazy idea that we should unite again. And you would think that would be a great idea, but for Jeroboam, that was a horrible idea because that means he's unemployed and he's no longer in power. And so Jeroboam says, well, I don't want that. So I need to find a way to stop them from going down there, but I can't tell them you're not allowed to go down there because then it's going to be obvious. And so he goes to Dan and Bethel. And in those two cities, he builds temples, places of worship. And you would think, well, he built places of worship to worship Yahweh. 1 Kings 12, verse 28. So the king, Jeroboam, consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? Where have you heard that before? Exodus 32. He reinstituted pagan worship of a golden calf. And then encouraged the people of Israel, don't go to Jerusalem, go worship the calf. And he called the calf Yahweh, the prophet Hosea, whose ministry overlapped with Micah, spoke constantly about their idolatry. He related it to harlotry, Hosea 2 verse 5. For their mother, mother is a reference to the leaders and rulers, has played the harlot, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Their lovers were these false gods that they were running after. And they thought that by worshiping these false gods, they were receiving blessing and wealth and prosperity. Later, another king, King Ahab, introduced the worship of Baal. And in Hosea 2, they actually call the blessings of Yahweh, the blessings that Yahweh gives them, they call it gifts from Baal or wages from Baal for their worship. Hosea 2, verse 12, I will destroy her vines and fig trees of which she said, they are my wages which my lovers have given me. I'm going and I'm worshiping Baal and he's rewarding me by giving me these vines and these olive trees and all this prosperity. God pours out blessing on his people. And instead of returning back to Yahweh and thanking him and praising him and worshiping him, they go and they worship and they serve a piece of gold or a piece of silver. Hosea 2 verse 8, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain the new wine and the oil, and lavish on her silver and gold, which they use for Baal. God would give them treasure, gold and silver, and they'd take that gold and silver and they'd make an idol out of it and worship it. And there was nothing that would slow them down. They were firmly committed to this. Even the prophets, like Hosea and Micah, had little effect on their worship. The prophets would come and they would preach. And the more the prophets preached, the more Samaria just ran after sin. Hosea 11, verse 2. The more they, the prophets called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. 
You want to know how far they fell into their idolatry? Kind of like he said in the movie, you want to know how deep the rabbit hole goes? They actually started calling Yahweh Baal and named him Baal. Hosea 2, 16. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and no longer call me Baali. Baali, if you translate it, means my Baal. So who was Baal? Baal was a fertility god. Uh, Fertility gods said that if you worship them, they would bless you. You'd have children. You'd have a lot of crops. Your flocks and your herds would multiply. You would have ample wealth and prosperity. It was kind of like the ancient version of the prosperity gospel. Only this one had a very strong push for sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality here is mentioned in Micah 1, verse 7. If you notice, he says, all of her earnings further down, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings. And to the earnings of a harlot they will return. One of the primary ways you would worship Baal is by going and engaging with a temple prostitute. There were both male and female prostitutes available. And you would go into the prostitute, and by doing so, you would commune with Baal. And he would reward you with livestock, wealth, and children. Now, you can imagine, this was a very profitable form of worship. And the temple very quickly became extremely wealthy. They had a whole lot of money pouring in for people to commune with Baal. And that's what he's referring to in the second line there. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings. In the first line, when he says all of her earnings, the earnings are the wages they receive from the prostitutes. But the temple was not a treasury house. It wasn't there to store cash. This wasn't like a bank vault. The earnings were used. They were used to go buy gold and silver. And the gold and silver was then turned into idols. You pay the prostitute, the money is then taken by the temple. They go buy the gold and silver and they make more idols for you to worship. And notice, he says, for she collected them. Them there refers back to the idols. And God looks at their crime and he is appalled and he is disgusted by it. And he says, look, I'm going to smash, burn every single one of these idols. And I'm going to take your divine images and I'm going to make them desolate. That's another way of saying you're going to desert them. They're not going to be used anymore. And then he says this in the last line. Look at this last line. And to the earnings of a harlot, they will return. What does that mean? They there still refers back to the idols. Here's what he's saying. When the judgment comes and this other nation comes in to wipe you out, 
They're going to take your idols. They're going to take the gold and the silver. And they're going to go back to their home, to their temples. And they're going to engage in temple prostitution there. And they're going to use the gold and silver to worship another god. Baal is so weak, he can't stop Yahweh. He can't protect his own images. He can't defend his worshipers. And the gold and silver that is used to make his image is now going to be used to worship another god. And the penalty for their sin is severe. And it happened just as Micah has written. The judgment described here occurred in 722 B.C. When Assyria went into Samaria and conquered it. It actually took three years for it to happen. The king took all the inhabitants of Samaria captive, those he didn't kill, and he carried them off into exile. 2 Kings 17, 5 and 6. There's my typo, Hen. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into, into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor, on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. He comes in, he conquers the city, he takes them all captive, and he resettles them somewhere else. But the city isn't completely destroyed yet. The Assyrian king then decides he's going to populate the city again. And he takes and he gets Gentiles from other lands and he sends them into Samaria and resettles the city. If you want to read about that, that's in 2 Kings 17.24. Those people, I think, eventually become what are known as the Samaritans. The final destruction of Samaria would come roughly 600 years later during the Maccabean Revolt. It's actually a little after the Maccabean Revolt. John Hyrcanus decided he wanted to get rid of the Samaritan worship there on the Mount of Samaria. And so he attacks it. John Hyrcanus, by the way, was a Jew from, is from Judah. And he attacks Samaria. The Jewish historian Josephus described it. And when Hyrcanus had taken the city, which was not done till after a year's siege, he was not contented with doing that only, but he demolished it entirely and brought, it, brought rivulets to it to drown it. For he dug such hollows as might let the waters run under it. Nay, he took away the very marks that there had ever been such a city. Destroyed the city completely. Historical evidence. What God promised to do through Micah actually happened. He removed everything. Completely destroyed. Would you like to see the city of Samaria today? That's it. Completely destroyed. All that remains of Samaria is the hill and a few scattered rocks. Don't take sin lightly. 
The Sumerians thought they could get away with it. They thought God's justice wouldn't come for them. They thought their wealth and their prosperity and having more kids and having more of everything would just fix everything. Jesus asked, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I have a feeling that after God wiped out their city, the Sumerians thought differently about what they were doing. All right, let me close because I just realized I'm over. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Micah. We do thank you that you are a just and holy God who hates sin. And we do ask that you would help us to live uh, holy lives, that we would love righteousness and justice as much as you do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.